Well, in our last two messages from the book of Philippians, we've been considering the doctrine of sanctification. Paul has called the Philippians to the pursuit of practical holiness by commanding them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And we've spent a couple of weeks looking at those two monumental verses, verses 12 and 13, seeking to mine out the rich, practical theology that's in that text, which guides and instructs us in how we're to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, after that general exhortation to be diligent in the pursuit of our sanctification, Paul starts to get specific. He speaks of a particular way in which the Philippians and in which we ourselves are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, a particular avenue of holiness that we're to set ourselves upon. And he states it plainly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He commands the people of God to eliminate complaining from their lives, both personal complaints about the various circumstances of our lives, and especially our complaints against one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's quite a striking command for us, especially given the mood of our society. We're champions of complaining. We live in a culture of discontentment and complaining, even amidst all the privileges and mercies that we enjoy. One only has to spend a little bit of time on the freeway to recognize that we're not immune to this grumbling spirit. We complain about the driver in front of us going too slow, the driver behind us going too fast. We complain about those who cut us off, and we complain about the horrendous pace of the traffic. And not just on the road, we hate any sort of traffic. Large crowds moving too slowly, long lines at the store. The neighbors are too noisy, the food's too cold, the bills are piling up, the dishes are piling up, gas prices are too high, all prices are too high, and the, the country is going down the tubes. See, we're complainers. And as unfortunate and shameful as it is, we don't check our complaining at the door on Sunday morning, do we? We have our complaints about our church. The preaching is too long. The preaching isn't practical enough. We always sing the same old worship songs, or we sing too many new worship songs that I can't follow the tune to. The church is too big. The people are too impersonal. They're just not friendly enough to meet my standard. Everyone already has their own little cliques, and they don't make me feel like I'm a part of them. These people are judgmental. They confront me about my sin. How dare they? Get the log out of your own eye, man. Even, I can't believe this whole thing about the gym remodel. I mean, why does Grace Life always get picked on? How do they expect us to concentrate in this kind of environment? How long is it going to take? see, we're complainers. So Paul's directive to us this morning speaks loud and clear and with an echo <laughs> and reaches directly into the most practical aspects of our lives. But not only is this command to do all things without grumbling or disputing a fitting standard for holiness in our day, it also makes good sense in the context of Paul's letter. You remember that 
Paul's overarching and driving concern in the book of Philippians is that his dear friends would bring their lives into conformity with the implications of the gospel of Christ. They are to, chapter 1, verse 27, conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or as we've put it, they are to live gospel-driven lives. And one of the principal ways in which the Philippians are to do that in the context of the opposition that they're facing from the outside world is to be unified in the church. They are to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, verse 27, with one spirit, one mind, together. And so at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul issues that clarion call for Christian unity via that passionate five-fold appeal. If the Philippians know the encouragement of Christ, if they know the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit, if they have any affection or compassion after having been graced with the affection and compassion of God, and if they have any desire to complete their dear pastor's joy, Paul says, be unified. See, this was a weakness for the Philippian congregation. Epaphroditus had brought reports to Paul of dissension and personal disagreements among some of the members of the church at Philippi, and especially those two women that Paul mentions by name in chapter 4, Euodia and Syndiki, whom he urges to agree with one another, live in harmony with one another in the Lord. And so Paul writes to tell the Philippians that if they're going to have any hope of conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, of holding their ground amidst the pressures of the world, and of advancing the gospel into a hostile society, they must be unified. If they're to stand out in distinction from the world, if they're going to offer the world something that it doesn't already have, if they are to, by their upright and chaste behavior, shine the light of holiness into the midst of darkness to light the way to Christ, they're going to have to stop bickering and complaining about one another. And so, in verses 14 to 16, Paul restates this call to unity as the preeminent practical application of his command to be pursuing holiness. He writes, "'Do all things without grumbling or disputing.'" so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain." And this text provides us with a very simple outline that will divide our message into two major points this morning. First, there is the command to do all things without complaining, the command. And second, there are two reasons for obedience to that command, the command and the reasons, nice and simple. First, the command, which we've already seen there in verse 14, Paul writes plainly, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, that's plain enough to understand. It's quite a bit easier said than done. Paul has laid upon the Philippians the injunction that they must work out their salvation with fear and trembling, because it's God who is at work within them, both causing them to will and to work in conformity with His own holiness. And then immediately after this, the most natural way in which this general exhortation to pursue holiness will manifest itself in the life of the Philippians is that they will cease from all manner of complaining. 
Grumbling is the Greek word gonguzmas. It's a word that sounds like, it, like what it means. Gonguzmas has that guttural sound of disgust that characterizes grumbling or griping or complaining. This word was used of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus was eating with Matthew and his tax collector friends, and the text says the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? They grumble. Your rabbi claims to be a teacher sent from God, but here you are eating with sinners. Don't you know that that's not acceptable? Or in the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20, the landowner hires multiple workers throughout different times of the day, and he pays them all the same wage, the wage that they had all agreed upon at the time that they agreed to take the job. And when the workers come to receive their pay, the ones who came last get paid first. They get paid what the workers thought they were going to get paid. They think, oh, well, if he's given him a denarius, surely I'm going to get some more. Then it comes time for them to receive their pay, and they get a denarius. And it says, the text says, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. And the landowner says, didn't we agree on a denarius? Didn't, didn't we agree on that? I've done you no wrong. Take what's yours and go. But the workers grumbled. I've been out here all day breaking my back in this scorching heat. This guy shows up an hour ago and gets the same pay as me. That's ridiculous. So that's actually characteristic of the disputing that always seems to accompany grumbling, which Paul also forbids in this verse. Do nothing or do all things without grumbling or disputing. Other translations translate this word questioning or arguing. The Greek word is dialogismos, from which we get the word dialogue. It refers to quarreling, to disputing, and sinful thoughts of protest. Back in Luke 5, where we, just, we were just a moment ago there, this word is used to describe the Pharisees again. As Jesus hears the, the paralyzed man, he says, friends, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees hear that, and their ears perk up. And the text says, Luke 5, 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, why are you reasoning in your heart? Why are you disputing? Why are evil thoughts arising in your heart? So this disputing that Paul forbids in Philippians 2.14, it has an, an internal intellectual characteristic to it, whereas grumbling might have been essentially emotional and has that external expressive aspect to it. Disputing is essentially intellectual and it often remains internal. When we complain about an unfavorable circumstance, that emotional response comes first, the grumbling. Oh, come on. Can you believe that? And then it's out there in the open. You can't get it back. You're committed to your foolishness. And so as you stew on it for a few seconds, either you begin to realize or somebody, usually your spouse, brings to your attention how foolish you sound. And then you start to rationalize it. You start to dispute. Did you see what he did to me, though? I mean, did you hear what she said to me? I mean, that was just ridiculous. Anyone in this whole world would have reacted exactly the way that I did if they were in this situation. And so we have the sinful disputing and evil reasonings that seek to justify our grumbling. And Paul says all of that has to stop. 
Do you want to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Are you serious about following the Lord in holiness and obedience? Well, then do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, some of you are thinking, really? I mean, not sexual immorality or adultery, not murder or idolatry, complaining? There aren't bigger fish to fry, Paul? I mean, complaining, is complaining even a sin? I mean, it's more like just a character flaw, right? Uh, a harmless shortcoming. I mean, everybody complains. We can tend to take that attitude towards complaining, can't we? Oh, it's just a harmless character flaw. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians who had their own issues of disunity and dissensions about the Israelites in the wilderness, and he's, he's warning them not to follow their bad example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul writes, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. And verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. I mean, not only is grumbling listed alongside idolatry, immorality, and testing the Lord. Here we learn that God takes grumbling so seriously that He killed the Israelites for it. And verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now if that's the case, we ought to turn back to those passages and be instructed from them. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. The Jews were being pursued by Pharaoh's army, and as they approached the Red Sea, they feared that they were trapped. They had the sea on the one side and the Egyptian army on the other side. And so the people complained to Moses and said, chapter 14, verse 11, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word which we spoke to you in Egypt? Didn't we tell you, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're grumbling. They're disputing. But God is gracious to them. He miraculously delivers them from the Egyptians. He leads them through the Red Sea on dry land and then brings the waters crashing back down upon their enemies. And verse 31 says, when Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh and they believed in Yahweh and in His servant Moses. But it didn't last very long. Turn to chapter 15, verse 22. Moses led the people into the wilderness, and it says they went only three days into the wilderness and found no water. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. 
So the people grumbled. They grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? We're going to die out here if we don't have any water. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I am just flabbergasted. I mean, three days ago, these people just lived through the most spectacular miracle that anyone had ever seen in history. They thought that they were trapped, they despaired, they complained, and then Almighty God accomplished their redemption in a way that would become the classic illustration of His care for His people for the next thousand years. And three days later, they have no water, and so they think they're trapped in the wilderness, and yet they grumble again. And again, God is gracious. He makes them the waters sweet, and then He leads them to an oasis at Elim. But after they left Elim, they had no food. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. It says, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled, again, against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by Yahweh's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And they're at it again, grumbling again. But God is gracious again and provides them with the bread from heaven, the manna. And they eat it and they're satisfied. But then, chapter 17, they set up camp at Rephidim and they find no water there. And chapter 17, verse 3 says, The people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They never learn. And this continues throughout their wilderness wanderings. Just one more text in this narrative. Turn to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14, 26. The text says, Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they're making against me. Say to them, as I live, says Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. In other words, you keep saying you're going to die in the wilderness. You're right. Verse 29, your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Verse 35, I, Yahweh, have spoken Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. Complaining, just a minor character flaw, right? Wrong. The entire generation of Israel, older than 20 years old, died for it in the wilderness. Why? I mean, why is it so severe? Is God overreacting? Moses said why in Exodus 16, verse 8. He said, your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. See, God is absolutely sovereign. 
All of the details of providence come directly from His perfect plan. And when you gripe against providence, you gripe against the God who orders all things after the counsel of His own will. Now, we might be tempted to scoff at Israel. I mean, you just saw Moses part the Red Sea. You just walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. And you watched God drown your enemies right in front of your eyes. That was three days ago. But we can't be that way with them. We've got to be careful. Because we do the very same thing. You say, I don't know, Mike. If I was walking across the, the Red Sea on dry land, seeing the waters up like walls beside me, I think it might last me a little bit more than three days. Oh, really? Well, God has accomplished a miracle in your life 10,000 times greater than the redemption of Israel through the Red Sea. He's accomplished your redemption from sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you were surrounded by your sin with nowhere to turn, when your iniquity hemmed you in on every side with no earthly means of deliverance, while we were still helpless at the right time, the Father sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. And that redemption never has to be three days past in our memory because the glories of that redemption are recorded for us infallibly in this precious book. And yet what happens as we wander through the wilderness of this foreign land that we're sojourning in, looking for the blessed rest of the, the promised land, the heavenly Canaan, we face trials and difficulties and annoyances and fearful circumstances. There are times when God in His providence, in order to conform us more into the image of His Son, brings us through such difficult situations. And with the smell of blood from Golgotha, still fresh in our nostrils, with the sounds of the nails that pierce Christ's hand ringing in our ears, and with the glorious sight of the tomb rolled away and the linen grave clothes on the floor empty, still fresh in our sight from our morning's Bible reading, we face the smallest of difficulties and we grumble against our God and we bring shame upon His name. Whether it's the general circumstances of your life or whether you're grumbling against your fellow Christians, like the Philippians were, God is absolutely sovereign over all the details of your life. And grumbling against them is grumbling against Him. Pastor John writes, in reality, every complaint a believer makes is against the Lord and is one of the ugliest sins. It demonstrates a lack of trust in His providential will, boundless grace, infinite wisdom and love. And John Piper writes, Grumbling is an evidence of little faith in the gracious providence of God in all the affairs of our lives. And little faith is a dishonor to Him. It belittles His sovereignty and wisdom and goodness. See, at its very bottom, pride is, or complaining is nothing more than faithless pride. It's nothing more than the surfacing of the, the deep-seated attitude that you think you deserve better than what you're getting. Every time you grumble, 
It's as if you're looking God in the face and saying, I see no reason for this. I deserve better than this. That ought to make every last one of us tremble. Who are we, mere creatures of the dust, to tell God how to be God, how to order his universe? As the prophet Jeremiah stands on the ash heap of Jerusalem after it had been ravaged by the Babylonians, rather than complaining about the destruction of the Lord's holy city, he says, Lamentations 3.37, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins. I, I love that. Catch what he's doing there. Why should any living mortal? In other words, if you're a mortal, you are a human being, you're condemned to die. You will die one day, and yet you are living. That's God's grace. Every moment that you and I are spared, my friends, from knowing the wrath of Almighty God exercised in unbridled fury against our sin in the most terrifying recesses of hell, we are getting better than we deserve. And so for sinful creatures like us, breathing the Lord's air, enjoying the mercies of His common grace, and especially knowing of the gospel love of His salvation, for us to grumble against His providence is absolute madness. James chapter 5, verse 9 says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And Paul's saying the very same thing to the Philippians, and he's saying the very same thing to us. You have your quarrels with one another. You refuse to humble yourselves and consider others as more important than yourselves. You refuse to defer to one another's interests above your own. You insist on your own way and you grumble against one another and dispute with one another. Dear friends, this should not be. Not among those who have been saved by the gospel of Christ. Not among those who are united to Christ, the Christ who humbled himself unto death on a cross without a sim single complaint passing from his lips or stirring in his heart. Not among those who are sharers of the same spirit. Not among those who, verse 15, are children of God. No, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? We've observed in great detail the command now that Paul gives in verse 14, to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? In verses 15 and 16, Paul lays out two reasons that we should be obedient to this command. That's the second point of our outline. First, the command, and now number two, two reasons for that command. And, that's, and the first reason why we should do all things without grumbling or disputing is for the sake of our witness, for the sake of our witness. Look at the text again with me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. 
holding fast the word of life. You see, the sin of complaining, of grumbling and disputing is so common in the unbelieving world, so ubiquitous that our doing all things without grumbling or disputing will set us apart from the world so starkly that we'll be like the brightest of stars shining in the blackest of night. Paul describes believers first as blameless. The term means to be beyond the, the reach of legitimate criticism. There is to be nothing about our character that gives occasion for scandal. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it well. He says, this term calls us so to live that those who are around us, looking at us and observing us, will never be able to see or find anything in us which is worthy of blame or of criticism or of reprimand. And he goes on, rightly, to note that this term has more to do, the connotations has more to do with external behavior, observable behavior. It's the term used in Luke 1.6 to describe Zacharias and Elizabeth, who, Luke says, were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And Paul also uses this word of himself to describe his former way of life in Judaism, Philippians 3, verse 6. He says that as to the righteousness which was in the law, he was found blameless. That doesn't mean that Zacharias and Elizabeth and Paul never sinned. It means that as far as anyone observing their lives could tell, their conduct comported perfectly with the standards of the law of God. But Paul's not only concerned with external behavior, he's also concerned with the internal state of the heart. And so he calls us not just to be blameless, but innocent. The word literally means unmixed, and it was used to describe wine that was undiluted or metals that were unalloyed, had no mixture, pure silver, pure gold. Paul is saying that our character must be the same, unmixed purity and innocence. Not only are we, to, are we to be blameless in our observable outward behavior, but we are also to have integrity in our hearts. And those who are blameless and innocent are further described as children of God above reproach. And that's really a way of summarizing the previous two. We are to prove ourselves to be children of God. It doesn't imply we're not already children of God. It means that we are to act in keeping with our identity as the children of God. I mean, Jesus says something similar in Luke 6.35 when he says, Love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You see, we're to imitate our Father. We're to become sons of the Most High, to reflect in our behavior the very character of God Himself, making it plain that we do not bear the family name for nothing. Children of God, Christian, we bear a name, and we need to live like we bear that name. And the word translated above reproach it's the same word that speaks of the Old Testament sacrifices as being unblemished, spotless, or without defect. I mean, from the very beginning of the ordinances of the sacrifices, the children of Israel were commanded to sacrifice animals that were without blemish. And you could look through it. Exodus 29.1 is the first instance. Uh, Leviticus, all throughout those first seven chapters of Leviticus, where those sacrificial laws are being uh, enjoined upon the people of God. It repeats over and over again, a, a, a ram without blemish, a bull without blemish. And when you come into the New Testament, 
when those sacrifices are done away with. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that all believers are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. In worship under the old covenant, the sacrificial animal was to be spotless and without blemish. Well, worship under the new covenant, our, our entire lives are the sacrifice that we pre present to God. Not as a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. And yet in the same way, we are to be spotless and without blemish. And this spotlessness or blemishlessness, that's, that's precisely God's own design in our salvation. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that before the foundation of the world, in the secret counsels of God's own decree, that God our Father chose us in Christ with a particular result in mind. Ephesians 1.4, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And later in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 27, Paul tells us that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And again, in Colossians 1.22, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so if this is the very reason, friends, that God has acted in our lives to save us, if this is the very reason, the very evidence of your adoption into the family of God, Will you not give yourselves wholly unto this endeavor of being blameless and innocent, of being children of God above reproach in this world, of working out your salvation with a diligent effort, conscious all the time that you are energized by God Himself working within you? you say, Mike, that standard's just too high. You have the privilege of coming to work every day for Grace Community Church. You get to live in the bubble of your ivory tower up there with all those wonderful fellow believers. But out there in the real world, you simply can't get by without cutting a few corners, without playing the game a little bit. I could really make some progress on this blameless and innocent thing if I could just get myself untethered from the world. But I have no choice. It's the world we live in. No, no, my friend. You haven't read the text very carefully. Paul tells us to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In the midst of it. The darkness of the world is never an excuse for a Christian to dim his light a little bit, to sort of ease his lamp under the basket. The darkness of the world is only all the more reason to let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and then glorify our Father who is in heaven. In His high priestly prayer in John 17, the Lord Jesus prayed to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So there's absolutely no biblical warrant for any sort of monastic lifestyle. Jesus' request is not take them out of the world or sequester them away from the world. His prayer is sanctify them as I send them into a crooked and perverse generation. 
And why? Why does He send us into that world? Verse 23, He says, perfect them in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. You see, the purpose of our unity, the purpose of our holiness, the purpose of our blamelessness, our purity, is not so that we can hide in a monastery contemplating our navel trying to attain to some exalted state of holiness, personal holiness. God's purpose for our sanctification doesn't terminate with us. He's working in us to will and to work for His good pleasure so that the world may know the Lord Jesus in and through His people. And apart from Christ Himself, I can't think of a better example of the lifestyle that Paul is calling us to than Daniel. Let's turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel was a man endeavoring to conduct himself as blameless and innocent as a child of God above reproach. And he certainly was living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, the pagan empire of Babylon. And because the Lord's favor was upon Daniel, the king of Babylon planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. And as a result of this, Daniel's enemies became jealous of him. And they tried to get the king to find fault with him somehow. And in chapter 6, verse 4, Scripture says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And the same needs to be true of us, friends. The same needs to be true of us, that the world can find no ground of accusation against us, even though they might try, except when obedience to the Word of God becomes illegal. Especially in our day, when our culture is becoming so openly anti-Christian, we who name the name of Christ, we are being carefully watched. We are being carefully studied and scrutinized and evaluated, seeing how we'll respond in different situations. The world is looking for an opportunity to point out the ways in which our conduct doesn't match our profession. They're looking for a spot, a blemish in our character. And Paul's saying, you want to stand out? Do you want to be blameless? Well, then do all things without complaining. When a Christian's demeanor and his conversation are laced with complaints, with grumblings, with gossip and slander, we don't look a bit different from the world. Your unbelieving friends and acquaintances witness you miserably brooding about, griping about your spouse, complaining about your children grumbling about your boss and your workload, and they couldn't want any less to do with this Jesus you claim is the fountain of delights. The sweet aroma of the gospel is snuffed out under the stench of your own complaining. But could you imagine the bewilderment of your unbelieving friends who grope about their own lives as if in darkness, Scripture says, coming into contact with a person who simply never complains? I mean, someone who constantly manifests the joy and humility that properly belongs to someone indwelt by the Spirit of God? 
Someone who knows and believes and lives like it's true that all the events of this life are the good and purposeful gifts of divine providence. Because of the ubiquity of complaining in this crooked and perverse generation, they would just have no way to explain why they never hear any complaining or grumbling or disputing from your lips, why you're always speaking words of of praise and affection regarding your spouse, or when you're always expressing thankfulness to God about your children, or why you work diligently at the office and don't complain about the workload or the attitudes of your co-workers. My friends, the world has no category for such a person. None. And what's the result? Paul says, we appear as lights in the world. This word lights, it's the same word used in the Greek translation of Genesis 1 to refer to the sun and the moon and the stars, the celestial luminaries that give light in the sky. And so this phrase is better translated, among whom you shine like stars in the night sky. That's an amazing picture. Think of all that communicates. I mean, certainly it reemphasizes the striking contrast that must be evident between the child of God and the world. But in that contrast, it alerts the unbeliever to something that he simply does not have. It expresses the un, or exposes rather the unbeliever's sin. See, he sees the chaste lifestyle and of a blameless and innocent child of God above reproach. And the law of God written on his conscience condemns him because he knows his life doesn't match that standard. He sees that standard that he knows in his heart is required of him, but he sees somebody living it in a way that he's chosen not to, that he may think is even impossible. He knows he doesn't meet that standard, and he, he is immediately offended, right? That's what 1 Peter 4, 4 says. The unbeliever is surprised that you don't run with him into sin, and he maligns you because of it. The darkness hates the light, Jesus said, John chapter 3, verse 20, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The kind of life that's commanded of those who would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel sticks in the craw of the enemies of righteousness and indicts their sinful lifestyle by exposing it in the light of holy living. But for those whom God is calling, the testimony of your gospel-driven witness, along with exposing the sin, will also serve as a guide to righteousness. It'll confirm the contrast. It will expose sin, but it will also serve as a guide, your witness will, to righteousness. Think for a moment about the truth that the unbelieving world lies in darkness. Think about that word picture, too. To be perennially in darkness is an utterly terrifying thing. The fear and the uncertainty and the vulnerability of being in utter darkness is so horrifying that Scripture even uses it as a metaphor for hell. 2 Peter 2.17 says that false teachers are reserved for the blackness of darkness forever. But imagine the hope ignited in the heart of one lost in darkness when he sees a glimmer of light in the distance. Imagine the sailor out on the open sea in the middle of the night, lost amid a storm, with no way of knowing how to travel in the right direction or even see 100 feet in front of him. And then all of a sudden, the clouds shift 
And the light of a star begins to twinkle in the sky. His hope is renewed. He can find his way home. Well, in the very same way, in the very same way, my fellow believers in Jesus, your blameless and pure lifestyle, devoid of sinful complaining and grumbling, and full of the joy and peace of the Holy Spirit is like the shining of the North Star in the midst of the blackest of night. It, it stirs hope in the soul of that unbeliever who the Holy Spirit is working in, who, is draw, who He is drawing to Himself, and it entices that person to find out what is the cause of such light in you. And in this way, our holy life, shining in the midst of the darkness, provides a platform from which we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Isn't that glorious? Doesn't that pull at the very heartstrings of your affections? Doesn't the, the prospect of serving Christ in that way, of being such a witness to His grace, to the unbelieving world, doesn't that just woo and entice you to holiness? Surely, if you have the life and the love of God stirring within your breast at all, you have to answer yes to that. That's got to give you strength. That's got to give you fuel to do battle against sin and to fight for holiness. What a privilege to be lights shining in the midst of darkness, to be the instrument of the, the salvation of those out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And how? How can we fulfill such a seemingly impossible task of walking blamelessly and, and innocently before the world as children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom as we, we shine as stars in the sky? Paul tells us in the first phrase of Philippians 2.16, look at the text, holding fast the word of life, holding fast the word of life. The word literally means to fasten upon. In Acts 3.5, after Peter and John told the lame man to look at them, he thought he was going to receive some money from them, so he was looking at them, and it, the text says he fixed his attention on them. He fastened his gaze upon Peter and John. And in the midst of all the crookedness and the perversity of this morally bankrupt generation, Amidst all the temptations to conform and to capitulate and to compromise, where will we get the strength to be blameless and innocent above reproach? Where will we get the strength to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Where will we get the strength to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? We will remain faithful only insofar as we fasten upon the word of life, only insofar as we fix our attention on God's Word, and don't deviate from it. Or to put it in the language that we studied last week, we will get the strength to run the race of this Christian life with endurance, laying aside the sin that so easily entangles us by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Well, now we have uh, just briefly now the second reason that Paul gives for why we must do all things without grumbling or disputing. Number one, for the sake of our witness. Number two, for the sake of our leaders. 
for the sake of our leaders. Let's read the second half of verse 16. Paul says, so that, so we're getting another reason, another purpose, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor labor or toil in vain. And this is so beautiful. Paul's pastoral heart shines through so clearly in this last phrase. See, he yearns for the Philippians' holiness, and particularly that they do all things without grumbling or disputing, because their spiritual maturity will be the ground of his rejoicing on the day of his reward. This is the measure of his ministry, the holiness of his people. All his running, all his toil, words that speak of hard labor, extreme exertion, athletic struggle, all of that won't be for nothing if, if the Philippians will have put on the righteousness of Christ in their daily living. Turn briefly with me to Romans chapter 15, where Paul speaks of the stewardship of his ministry in offering, in terms of offering the people of God to God as a priestly sacrifice. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 16. Paul says, He is ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. You see, just as we spoke before about our own lives being blemishless, a sacrifice that was without spot, Paul sees the Philippians, his people, as a, his sacrifice to God from their pastor. And he's laboring for their sanctification because he doesn't want to present an impure sacrifice to God at the end of his ministry. He wants to present a pure sacrifice, one without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing. And so he's enticing the Philippians to pursue holiness by telling them that their holiness will mean that he will get to present a more holy sacrifice to the Lord on the day of reckoning, that their holiness will achieve and result in his greater joy and rejoicing as he boasts about the work and in the work that Christ has accomplished through him and among his people. And the Philippians, they would have absolutely loved to know that they could do that, that they could contribute to Paul's joy and his rejoicing. And that opportunity to bless their pastor was an excellent motive for their obedience. And dear friends, it is the same today. Your pastors who labor over you in the Word and in prayer, we know a small part, some of us a lot less than others, know in a very small part of what Paul means when he describes ministry as running and as toil. It is an absolute joy. We will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. But we don't want to run or labor in vain. And what will make our joy complete and what will prove to us that our ministry was not a failure is that if on that great day we can present you, precious people, back to the Lord as an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, 
And I can't improve upon what our pastor says on this subject. He says, the best thing believers can do for their pastors is faithfully to live out the truths of God's word that he has preached and taught so that he can say with Paul, I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The greatest joy of any servant of God is the godly living of his flock. I have no greater joy than this, the Apostle John said, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And so, Grace Life, do all things without grumbling or disputing, especially without grumbling and disputing against one another. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. Make our joy complete by being unified, by lovingly and humbly and sacrificially serving one another with a view to shining the light of God's holiness into a dark world. Pray that he would accomplish that among us with me. Oh, Father, we do ask that very thing, that you would so purify us, so conform us to the image of your Son, that we would shine the light of holiness even in our conduct into the world in which we live, this crooked and perverse generation among whom we appear as and shine as lights in the world. We want to have that redemptive and sanctifying influence on the world. We want to draw in your people into your fold by the glory of the gospel. And if we can make a platform for the gospel in our holiness, and our practical behavior, we would ask you, Holy Spirit, to accomplish that work in us. Banish grumblings and disputings from our heart. Cause us to be holy. Cause us to be perfected in unity as the Lord Jesus prayed so that the world may know, so that the world may know, so that you may receive the worship and honor that you are worthy of. That is our greatest delight and our, our highest desire. Now we pray, send us across the patio to worship and enjoy and peace with the gathered assembly so that, so that again, you may get what you are worthy of in your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.